Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and you're listening to an episode in Grinnell College's Authors and Artists podcast. And today I'm very pleased to say we have Jerry Lalonde on the show, and he is the author of Athena Etonia, Geography and Meaning of an Ancient Greek War Goddess. Jerry, welcome to the show. I'm happy to be here. Thank you. Terrific. Um, As you know, I'm a graduate of Grinnell College. I graduated in 1984, and you were a professor when I was there. I think people would be interested to know uh, a little bit about your background, how you became what you are, and how you ended up at Grinnell. Okay. In order to do that, I need to go back to my youth. I grew up in rural Washington State, a member of a large factory working family. And as a child, I entertained myself drawing and painting. And I had the idea that I would go to college to study art or architecture. But I was in a Catholic uh, grade in middle school. And the parish priest told us acolytes, you all take the test to the seminary. It's not an application. Well, it turned out it was. (laughs) And I was afraid to say no. And... uh, So I went off to six years of athletic and spiritual exercise around a liberal education, a large part of which was six years of Latin and four years of Greek. And at the end of those six years, I came to a crucial turning point. Um, The decision was whether I would go on to study philosophy and theology and be ordained in the priesthood And uh, at that point, being 20 years of age, I thought I should determine the direction of my life finally. (laughs) So I took three years of credit uh, to the University of Washington. Um, Being a a naive rustic, I I thought either you had moneyed parents or the GI Bill or you worked your way through school. So I was working eight hours a night as a mechanic and riveter at Boeing, making the 747, two hours of commitment or uh, commuting for two hours and trying to carry a full load in uh, commercial design. After two years of that, uh, great physical and mental stress, I decided to take my Greek and Latin credits to classics department with the idea of teaching high school Latin. Uh, Well, one thing led to another. After the degree, uh, I was invited to graduate study and given a teaching assistantship. And the University of Washington Classic Department got me um, on an archaeological excavation in Athens. This rustic who had never been east of Spokane flew to Athens. And the next day, I was directing an excavation in the shadow of the Acropolis. Wow. So I was able to add to mainly philological education, art and ancient art and archaeology. And I was also established in Athens with the American School of Classical Studies and the great libraries, museums, and archaeological sites, which, together with my philology, became the focus of my research and teaching for my career. 
And my first appointment was at Grinnell College, <laughs> at excellent colleagues, students, and under their auspices and that of the American School, I went into the career of research and teaching in classical studies. Um, what year did you arrive at Grinnell? 1969. <laughs> that was quite that was a very year interesting year. Yeah. Uh, Rather chaotic, uh, the great <laughs> activism about the Vietnamese War. Yeah, uh, I claim that I learned more about my colleagues in that year than I could have learned in ten normal years. I think that's probably right. Yes, you see people's colors in crisis situations. Yeah, the one of the mantra of that time was letting it all hang out. Yes, I can imagine what Grinnell was like in 19... Didn't the college close briefly in 19... Yes, yes, there was no graduation. It closed in the spring after the Cambodian invasion, the Kent State uh, killing. Yeah. Wow, that must have been quite an introduction to college teaching. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, I presume... Well, every I know this for a fact, because uh, when I was at Grinnell in the 80s, we did not let it all hang out. We studied a lot. <laughs> so can you um, continue by uh, telling us why you wrote this book, Athena Etonia? Yes. Um, I have to talk about the, the progression of uh, this book. Like most of my large research projects, it started with very small uh, beginning. I was the editor of the Horus inscriptions. These are uh, inscriptions that identified or uh, set the boundaries of um, property in ancient Athens. And one of these uh, stone uh, fragmentary inscriptions was um, the identifying inscription for a sanctuary of Athena Etunia. So I became curious about uh, this unusual by name, uh, the word I use uh, for the second name of gods. Um, and then I found that there were three other fragmentary inscriptions, uh, two inventories of uh, the treasuries of the other gods, and also a sacrificial calendar that mentioned uh, sacrifice to Athena Etonia. So I thought I would write an article on this unusual, this minor Athenian cult. And that was soon overridden by the fact that I found that uh, this cult of Athena Etonia was prominent in three other places in Greek antiquity, Thessaly in the north of Greece, Boeotia, central Greece, and on the remote island of Aragos in the Cyclades. Well, that led to the decision to write a comprehensive book about uh, the cult of Athena Etonia, which had been touched on in articles and in small uh, addition to books. Uh, and uh, so what started out as a small curiosity uh, turned into a major project. And along the way, I became interested very much in this cult. And the title of the book, uh, is indicative of the progress of that interest. Uh, geography, uh, the question of the origin of the cult, where did it start, 
and how did it how was it propagated uh, within large areas like Thessaly, Boeotia, or from one uh, area of Greece to another? And also the meaning, that is, the book pays a lot of attention to the attributes of Athena Etonia. What was her major character? And calling her a, an ancient Greek war goddess uh, gives away what my conclusion was about mm -hmm. that, but there was much controversy along the way uh, about her character. Mm -hmm. So just to frame our discussion a little bit for the listeners, what period of time are we talking about here from the origins to the, I don't know, demise of the cult? Yes. Uh, I contend that the cult originated in Thessaly, and that's the earliest evidence of the cult uh, in the sanctuary that was excavated at Philia in Thessaly. Uh, artifacts of this cult go back at least to the geometric period and perhaps before that, even to Mycenaean time. And the cult is manifested in these four places as late as the Roman imperial age. Mm -hmm. So it covers approximately 1000 BC to as late as uh, the second century after Christ. Mm -hmm. and, and I don't want to misspeak here, but the, this is a local cult or is it pan-Hellenic or uh, what, what can we say about its geographic boundaries? Yes. Um, it's only known in those four places that I mentioned. This is not to say that the cult um, did not exist in any number of other ancient Greek states. We have to understand that there was no nation state of Greece as a whole until the independence from the Ottoman Empire in the 19th century. So Greece really was a huge diaspora of over 100 sovereign independent polis, city-states. And uh, the relation of religion that you define a Greek as someone who worshipped the gods, the Greeks, and spoke the Greek language. But ancient Greek religion is very interesting, being polytheistic. There was no such thing as the separation of church and state. The politics, government, and religion were deeply enmeshed with one another. Uh, there was also no single scripture, theology, or priestly hierarchy. Greek religion was a multitude of independent cults, often of the same gods uh, in various places, uh, a multitude of sanctuaries for those cults, and a multitude of priests and priestesses who oversaw the operation of those uh, cults and sanctuaries. And the gods had multiple attributes. Um, like most religions, Greek religion was a, an exercise in rituals in which people tried to establish some relationship with supposed supernatures, through the rituals of prayer, sacrifice, votive offerings, by which they established a, um, 
an affiliation that would give them some reciprocity about human problems of any sort that mm -hmm. were in the attributes or the the purview of those that multitude of uh, uh, gods, goddesses, and cults. I think I think maybe the listener. Uh, I don't want to get this wrong, but I I was I I read the Iliad a couple of years ago, and there's a, a ritual I think it is called a hecatomb. Does that make any sense to you? It's a hecatomb. It's a, a mysterious word. Literally, it means a hundred oxen, and it would be a, a huge sacrifice. We don't know of an individual sacrifice that, uh, that resulted in the killing and roasting of a hundred oxen. A hundred oxen, yeah. The, the only reason I mention it is that I thought the listeners might be familiar, because it's mentioned many times. Yes. Iliad, it happens a lot. Yes. <laughs> but the Iliad is the result of long oral tradition, and oral tradition is subject to all kinds of fantasy, mythology, exaggeration. Yeah. Uh, well, this, this, this actually gets me to write where I want to go. Well, I want to go in two directions. One is that uh, as a medievalist myself, not a, not a classicist, would it be fair to say that many of the sentences that you just uttered about this particular cult would be considered controversial among your colleagues? I know that in the medieval case, if you say this was the case, you have five people who say that it wasn't. <laughs> no, I don't think they would argue with the the general statements that I made about Greek yeah. religion. No, history. they wouldn't. No, I was thinking more about the particular time boundaries and ge geography yes. and this other. Yes, and and also that it was a warrior cult. This is somewhat polemical. That is that becomes polemical in and in, in some time and places that I deal with. Um, about the character. Uh, yeah, the thing I'm trying to get at here is the degree to which there is a lot we do not know because of the fragmentary nature of the sources. So maybe we can talk about the sources a little bit. What, what are the main sources for the study? The main sources are epigraphy, that is inscriptions, uh, literary sources from antiquity, from various times. So when you say epigraphy, you mean things scratched onto walls and things like That's this. Yes. Description. Yes. Uh, any, anything etched, scratched, even painted onto a two-dimensional surface. Yes. And so then literary artifacts, none of which come down to us in the original. They've all essentially been copied and recopied and redacted and everything else imaginable to them. Yeah, they are the end result of a long history of uh, transmission through the yes. centuries since antiquity. There are some occasions where inscriptions contain fragments uh, that also appear in literature, the uh -huh. literary sources. Uh -huh. and, and then there's, is there numismatics involved? I just like that yes, word and wanted to say. numismatics <laughs> involved, especially about religion and the state, because coinage was a um, an expression of religious devotion, but it was also a manifestation of the power and the position of government. Um, it often involved uh, a degree of propaganda. So coins are an important source for ancient government and also for religion. 
Uh, there's also all kinds of iconography in the form yeah, of sculpture, that, yeah. painting, uh, many types of artifacts. Uh, so e each of these sources is a kind of world in, in, of interpretation in and of itself. In and they, of they it. are not plain spoken. They don't just tell you something. No, it's a, <laughs> a, it's a great uh, kind of detective work in which you look at all the different types of, of evidence and see where they agree or disagree with one another. And then you uh, develop the narrative uh, from that. Yeah, insofar as you can even construct a narrative with any confidence. Yes. Uh, this book is really not a continuous narrative, but it's also not uh, for completely independent works about the uh, the time and place where this cult is manifested. Uh, as I say in the introduction, there is a great opportunity for me as the author and also for the readers to make comparisons of the evidence from one place to another, the arguments about uh, the cult in, in one place or one time uh, from one to another. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that it's, I, I'm calling on my, my knowledge as a medievalist is that a different scholar could look at these same sources and reach somewhat different conclusions. Is that true? Yes, it is. <laughs> Although your interpretation is definitely correct. No. <laughs> Often the conclusions are tentative or hypothetical, but the problem with often with scholarship is that people who uh, they want to be uh, definite and therefore they they use they pass off the hypothetical and the speculative as being fact. And the problem with that is that then other propositions get based on those yes. speculations. Yeah. And Yeah, um, yeah this I, is the problem of supposition being built on supposition. Right. <laughs> there are several places in the book where I deal with these uh, controversies. And I don't. I do not always end up with a de definitive conclusion of my own. Uh, in the first uh, chapter of this book, for example, about the origin of the cult in Thessaly, in the nineteenth and early twentieth century, most of the scholarship was directed to uh, Eastern Thessaly, in the area of Achaea Theotis which is uh, near the Gulf of Pegasi, the, the seaport entry into Thessaly. We have there two sources. One, Homer talks about uh, the city Eton in dealing with a catalog of ships in the Iliad. Eton is one of the, the cities that is the subject of Protesileus. Um, also, Strabo, the geographer from Augustine's mm -hmm. uh, time, uh, mentions a city Etonos and the shrine of Athena Etonia near it with considerable geographical reference points. Well, scholars, archaeologists, topographers spent a great deal of time in that part of Thessaly, and they did not find Eton, Eton <laughs> or the uh, shrine of Athena Etonia. But in the 1960s, 
And there was some hint that in Western uh, Thessaly, there might be some uh, evidence of the cult of Athena Etonia. And chance finds around this village, the modern village of Philia, began to turn up artifacts that the local people began to sell on the market. Finally, <laughs> Greek archaeological service intervened and Demetrius Theokaris uh, headed an excavation of that. And that is the only sanctuary of Athena Etonia that is absolutely verified. And the artifacts go back to the geometric period. But this find created so much uh, interest that there developed the idea that Eton and Etonos were not in Eastern Thessaly, as Homer and Strabo said, but they were this place where uh, the village of Philia. Well, that has developed all kinds of, uh, I mean, so many people have hatched, uh, you know, grasped that argument, saying, well, there was an Eton or an Etonos in both places. Um, but they do not face the fact that Homer's Eton, the mother of flocks, is only one of five uh, places that are mentioned in the command of Protesileus in the catalog of ships of Homer's Iliad. The other four places are well known in later Greek history, and they are all in the area of Eastern Eastern. Desert. But just so the listeners understand, we don't know where this place was. I mean, it does not survive, as far as we know. There's no remnant of this place. No. (laughs) Unless you believe with those who now believe that Philia, Philia, even though there was no city there, actually it was a religious center that was apparently what they call an amphictyony, that is a an area of devotion for numerous villages and towns that were in the area. But it was independent of all of them. It was not under the supervision of a particular city. So this this was probably a place name, probably. Yes, it was. And uh, I agree with Martin Nielsen. Uh, his idea is that Athena Itunia was a merger of the Olympian goddess Athena with a local heroine or goddess who had a cult in the place Eton or Etono, and she was the maiden of Eton or Etonos, hence the name Etonia. Mm-hmm. And at some point, she became combined with Athena in the cult of Athena Etonia. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So one of the things that you argue in the book is that this is, in fact, a war goddess. Yes. Athena is the goddess of lots of things, at least, you know, to the general public, like and, me, like weaving, I think. Isn't Athena the goddess of weaving? Yes, all yeah. kinds of handiwork. I don't really associate weaving with the martial arts, but whatever. No, <laughs> but like many Greek gods, uh, Athena, if we take her at the whole of all of the cults of Athena, she has many attributes but martial uh, power is one of the most prominent. And that, at least in the theory of Nilsson, goes back clear to the Minoans and Mycenaeans. She was some kind of palace god. And when she was adopted by the more warlike Mycenaeans, she became 
uh, a military deity. Some of this probably is rooted in the fact that her father is Zeus, uh, the king of gods, and that uh, she was born from the head of her father, even though Zeus supposedly swallowed wisdom, mantis. This also accounts for uh, an attribute of Athena as the god of wisdom. Yeah, yeah. But you're right. There are all kinds of other lesser attributes, handiwork, fertility. Yeah. Yeah. The weaving is the one that sticks in my mind. And I don't know why, because it just seems so odd to me that you would have a goddess of weaving. But what do I know? There's probably a saint of, of weaving. Yeah. Well, even in uh, in Apollonius's epic about uh, Jason and the Argonauts, uh, Athena is, he makes... Athena, the guardian of Jason, Athena Itonia, because he is uh, from Thessaly. But uh, Apollonius adds some of these non-military uh, attributes to that Athena Itonia. And one of them is weaving. She weaves the, the scarlet robe that is given to uh, Jason. She is also the architect of his building, the shipbuilding of the Argo. So, well, maybe I could ask a more general question from a kind of Christian perspective, if that's not silly. No, uh, it's not silly. <laughs> it was, so we it have raised a, yeah. a hellfire and brimstone Catholic. Yeah, part of the interest in ancient Greek religion was its uh, its great difference from yes. Well, and this is the question I was going to ask. So I was raised a Lutheran. And, and according to Lutherans, God is the God of love, and that's it. There's no more to say. Um, we don't have a God of war in the Christian religion. How? How? Why was it that they had a goddess of war? Well, I think uh, the answer is uh, the great role of warfare in the history of Greece. Again, we go back to uh, what it meant to be a Greek and what was Greek. Over a hundred independent sovereign city-states scattered around the littoral of the Mediterranean and mm-hmm. the Black Sea. Uh, most of the wars of the Greeks were with one another uh, rather than against uh, non-Greek uh, forces. So they could use the same god or goddesses uh, against one another, but there was no such thing as a, a long-term and permanent intrinsic hostility among them. But the deities retained the attributes, even in peacetime. Uh, you know, it becomes a little bit like Homeric epithets. I mean, swift-footed Achilles. Yeah, yeah, he's right. Still swift-footed even when he's sleeping. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Well, I, th- I think we can say uh, as a generality that uh, warfare was important for the identity of these people. Yes, it was. It was um, because there was a, a constant rivalry, and sometimes that rivalry uh, led to hostility. But it was a rivalry expressed in all kinds of other ways, economically, mm-hmm. athletically. The Olympic Games are really uh an episode in Greeks coming together from all over the Greek world to compete with one another. Mm-hmm. And 
the bragging rights that resulted from victory in those games was very much like uh, the celebration of victory in, in warfare. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's that's right. harmful. Their warfare with one another among the Greeks was somewhat different from the warfare with non-Greek peoples, the aliens. Oh. Mm -hmm. That is, H.D.F. Kiddo, one who wrote one of the best uh, compendiums of uh, ancient Greek culture, used to describe uh, the battle of two phalanxes of Greek uh, heavy-armed troops as being like a rugby scrum. Mm -hmm. They came together, there were some casualties, but at the end they separated and went home. Uh, but the attitude of the Greeks about Persians in the Persian War was more like the chronic hostility in modern time between Greece and the Turks. Mm -hmm. uh, and that is never going to end as long as those <laughs> cultures exist side by side with one another. Um, yeah, yeah, I see. I see what you mean. The uh, one of the things that occurred to me while I was looking at the book was that uh, the story is not done. People are still digging around and uncovering fragments and new coins and different things in manuscript repositories. So there's more news to come as this information is uncovered. Correct? Yes. Many of these controversies, for example, about where Etnos really was in Thessaly. Thessaly is a huge area, and a great part of it has not been studied or excavated. With uh, So there's a, a great opportunity for more, uh, for evidence that may solve some of these problems. Um, how, how do you, uh, this is a kind of a side question, but I'm thinking of from the point of view, I, I've been on an archaeological dig myself, and I loved it. As a historian, it was just the most fascinating thing I've ever done. Uh, how does one get the opportunity to go dig around there? Uh, I mean, I suppose you have to go to school for 10 years, but... <laughs> not really. I mean, I would never had any archaeological experience. And when I went to the ancient Agora, I was assigned uh, a great group of workmen. But of course, it was just excavation of the last road that ran through the uh, the area of the Agora, but I turned to have I turned out to have the best quality that an archaeologist can have, and that is luck. <laughs> I discovered yeah. at the intersection of this road a beautiful shrine, triangular shrine with a lovely inscription identifying it. And then the first day of the second summer, I found the richest tomb ever found in Athens. That that yeah, that is luck. Yeah. Yes. yeah, but um, the procedure is, I mean, you have to go through usually one of the academies um, in Greece. Most of them are administrated and financed by countries, the British school, the German school, mm -hmm. the school, French school. Uh, American School of Classical Studies is a, a private corporation. But uh, if you want... Uh, to um, an archaeological excavation, you have to apply it, apply for it through one of those schools, yeah. and the and the opportunities are quite limited, and the criteria for uh, permits are very strict. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, 
I'm glad you mentioned very, that. Uh, the excavation is very expensive. Yeah, I imagine. Uh, I was going to say, I, I'm glad that you mentioned the international character of this, because really you're operating in a scholarly tradition that goes back at least hundreds, if not thousands of years, that involves people from really all over the world. And one of the things that I, I know, having read your book, is the number of languages involved. <laughs> how many ancient languages and how many modern languages did you access to write this book? Uh, of course, Greek and Latin, and in some cases, the dialects of Greek. I was going to say, there's not just one kind of Greek. No, there, <laughs> there are numerous dialects of ancient Greek, and you have to be able to read them. Um, there's different orthography and phonology, uh, but also some of them are chronologically far afield. I mean, there are places in this book where I had to deal, at least in a short range, with Linear B, oh, great. Uh, writing yeah. of the ancient Mycenaeans. But then you have to deal with modern scholarship. Uh, it is not like the uh, field of uh, medicine or lawyers where you have people who translate things for you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. And the history of scholarship, of classical scholarship outside of uh, uh, Greece and Italy is the Germans. It really begins with the Germans. Most uh, most everything scholarly does begin with the Germans. Yeah. That's what I discovered. It really is a break off from uh, <laughs> theological and scriptural studies. Among yeah. Germans. So you have to be able to read German and French and Italian. And if you're dealing with archaeology or history in Greece, modern Greek, uh, that's probably my strongest language because I've spent a lot of time there. But Occasionally, I have to sally into Spanish. Yeah. And if you can read German, uh, Dutch is possible. It's, it's close <laughs> enough. It's possible yeah. for you. Oh, <laughs> I don't know about the rest of us. <laughs> no, I even, one of my students once wrote to me from the, <laughs> the University of Cincinnati saying, Jerry, I saw your name and... Uh, some credit given to you in a work, a Dutch work on ancient toilets. <laughs> <laughs> well, this reminds me of one of my favorite anecdotes from graduate school. Uh, a graduate student um, is in a seminar with his professor and his professor says, uh, I want you to read this book and report back on it next week. Hands him the book. The book is in Hungarian. And the graduate student says, uh, I don't read Hungarian. And the Professor says, have you tried? 